0: morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 30. This is John ten fourteen through 30. This is God's word. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was once again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever.
1: Let me also say good morning to all of you. Good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Uh, let's see, I wanted to introduce one family, but I can't seem to locate them right now. Joyce's friend Sue is here. some, Oh, there she is. <laughs> uh, they're college friends. Uh, Sue is visiting from Houston with, I believe, her four children, was it? Yes, three of oh, three children. Let's give them a warm welcome. <laughs> right. Okay, so. We are continuing with our tulip series today, and uh, like I said last Sunday, I was going to bring some tulips for us to enjoy. So here they are, hope it brightens your day, and then they kind of look wilted, but uh, (laughs) they're from Trader Joe's. They're fresh, I guarantee it, Um, just as a prop to help you remember this series better, okay? And uh, next Sunday, I'll bring maybe different color flowers. I think this uh, this kind of series, uh, we don't offer that often, you know, I've been really tackling biblical narratives uh, pretty much in the majority of the past two, three years, you know, we recently covered the book of Ruth, which is a fun narrative to go through, it's fun to preach from, I think most of you enjoyed also hearing from that series, but, you know, as I've said, it's sometimes important to shift gears a bit and and, uh, go through these more rigorous doctrinal series, especially in this day and age when people just have no idea what they're to believe and they claim to just, you know, believe whatever they want to believe essentially. And so we want to use this time, this season uh, as a way to uh, remind ourselves what is it really that we believe as a church, what's anchoring us doctrinally, theologically. And so I know that the content itself can feel heavy, but uh, I want to encourage you to just be attentive as possible and I, I trust that the Lord will use the message to edify you in the end. Okay, especially if you're teaching, maybe in, uh, in youth ministry or children's. It's especially relevant because, as a teacher, right, uh, we really uh, won't w- would not want you to be teaching anything contrary to what the church believes. in. so, pay attention, all right, if you're a teacher, <laughs> especially. Um, so, what does tulip stand for? If you're new here for the first time, you're confused. What, what in the world is tulip? What is this? Well. We began by um, mentioning some history. You know, there was a, a, can I get the slides up? Okay. There was a, there was a guy named Jacob Arminius, a six, 16th century figure. He had a problem with what the tur- church was teaching at the time. And so he and his followers came up with this formulation, and they call it the five points of Arminianism, uh, based off his last name, Armini- Arminius. And uh, I listed it for you there uh, for the past couple of weeks. It's our third This is part three in the series. And in response, the church at the time, uh, they met at a a synod of Dort. uh, That was the name of the town, I guess. And they came up with the five points of Calvinism, otherwise known as TULIP. And so that name stuck all these centuries. And so uh, it's T U L I P, the first letter of each point. Uh, We covered total depravity, uh, irresistible. We kind of went out of order because we said we're going to cover in the order we normally experience these graces. And so we went T-I, and today we're going L, limited atonement. Uh, Sorry if that term sounds so dry and archaic. Uh, Basically, though, it means Christ's sacrifice, right? What Christ accomplished. was a very important idea. Uh, And then we're going to go to you next Sunday. Uh, That's probably one of my, maybe my favorite one, and then uh, to cap it off will be P in two weeks, okay? So what does atonement, let's start there. What does atonement mean, okay? I want you to be able to really understand this. Atonement basically refers to Christ's work of reconciling God and man, okay? Because the biblical story tells us that because of sin, there's this massive chasm that was created between God and man, right? We, we can't, we could not, in our own ability, overcome this chasm. There's a wide gap, there's a division, right? We are enemies, we're God's enemies, and so there has had to be something that was initiated by God, right, to reunite us to God, right? And so Christ was sent in order to Reconcile us to God through his grace, through his work on the cross. And so that's what atonement refers to. The doctrine of limited atonement or definite atonement. I'll explain why some people prefer definite later. uh, This doctrine addresses the question: for whom did Christ actually die? Right? For whom did Christ die? Let that sink in, let that question sink in. Have you ever asked that question? For whom did Christ actually die, okay? Did Christ die for everyone in the exact same way, or did he primarily die to save his chosen people? Right. the Bible uses the term God's elect. Uh, John used the language of God's sheep, okay? The passage was just read for you. All right, these are interchangeable. Sheep, elect, God's chosen. Um, another like set of questions we could ask, and I, I listed it there, so you can differentiate between the Armenian and Reformed view. The Reformed view is what we believe. In case you're new, was Christ's sacrifice on the cross merely an attempt to save everyone? All right, that's the Arminian view. That's the, that's probably the more popular view in our day. Okay. Or was it an actual success in saving God's people from their sins, right? Did Jesus actually accomplish what he went out out to accomplish, right? Uh, Did he achieve what he wanted to achieve? That's the reform view. We say yes to that. Now, out of all the five points, uh, this L, this third point, is for many the most difficult point to accept because it directly goes against the popular idea that God loves everyone in the exact same way. I mean, we live in such a you know egalitarian world where everyone wants to kind of flatten everything and say we're all equal in every sense with no no difference whatsoever. And so they, they treat this doctrine the same way. Um, many people believe that the Bible speaks of everyone in the world as God's children. And so, when they hear that Jesus primarily died for His chosen people, uh, that just doesn't sit well, right, in the hearts of many. And I I was in that camp as well for several years as I was grappling with these doctrines. And so, I understand why people would react that way. Uh, But I want to encourage you to think carefully about this question of, for whom did Christ die? Because I believe if you understand this correctly, God's grace will come to you afresh and you will be humbled to know the the deep love of God for you. You will look at grace and and truly you'll be able to sing what amazing grace this is, maybe for the first time, okay? Now, before we look at specific Bible passages, uh, let me offer you a reason why this third point is named the way it is and why people really actually don't like the way it's named, right? Now, remember that TULIP was a response to the five points of Arminianism, okay? And here was the original article that was drafted by the (coughs) Arminians under unlimited atonement. This is what they stated, right? So... I know that everyone wants to just kinda chill at the park and eat hot dogs and hamburgers, but I don't wanna rush this, okay, so I'm sorry. I can't, I cannot rush this. I gotta go a little slow, actually. So, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, died for all men and for every man. Okay, so you have to, you you can't miss that. What they're emphasizing here is he died for all men without qualification, right? All men for every man, okay, every person, so that he has attained for them all by his death on the cross redemption and the forgiveness of sins. No exceptions, every man, all people, yet that no one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer. That's how they stated this article. Right? And they base it off of John 3.16 and 1 John 2, uh, verse 2. I'll, I'll just read those for us. It's a very popular John 3.16 passage. Right, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, so, uh, you know, we, 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 we would argue, uh, I think Piper argues that there, there is a general love that, that God extends to the world. But also, some people would take this world. Let's actually take First John, for instance, because there's a language of world that can be you know, defined differently depending on the context, right? I hope you can see that. And, and John, 1 John, uh, this passage, it says, and he is the propitiation for our sin. I know that's a big word. You may have never heard it before, but it basically means uh, that God, as he pours upon his wrath on Jesus, his son, His justice is satisfied. There's a satisfaction uh, that is offered, right? Um, That's propitiation. So he is, this is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, okay? Now, the Arminians interpret the world here to mean every single person in the world, but I'm arguing that it need not be taken that way, right? You can take this to simply mean like every nation, tongue, tribe, like in a general sense, every people group, right? Uh, so not every single individual, but every, you know, all, every every tribe, nation, tongue, like the, in other words, the gospel does not only extend to the Jews, but also now to the Gentiles. And so it's offered to all people in that sense. Now, historically, to distinguish between these two views, the Arminian view was named unlimited atonement. Right? It was given the, the better name, I think, historically. And the Calvinist view was named limited atonement, right? Not, not a very attractive name because, I mean, who wants to be known as someone who believes in a limited atonement, right? It just doesn't sound very biblical, right? Uh, but the term actually is very misleading because it gives people the impression that Uh, those who embrace limited atonement are the only ones who limit the atonement. (laughs) The the truth of the matter is that both sides, whether you're an Arminian or a a Calvinist, we, we both, whoever you are, we both limit the atonement in some way. Let me explain, right? The Arminians, they actually limit the power of the atonement. How so? Well, they claim that Jesus died for every person in the same way. But I ask you, why, why then is not everyone saved? Well, according to Arminianism, Christ's sacrifice actually doesn't have the power to save anyone. It only makes people saveable. Right? It only gives people the potential to be saved. What power is that? Right? It kind of goes halfway. It doesn't go all the way. It gives people only the potential to be saved because salvation, in the end, it depends on people's free will, how they will exercise their free will. On the other hand, Calvinists, that's me, hopefully that's you, we limit the scope or the extent of the atonement, right? We we say that the atonement was sufficient for the whole world, but it was only efficient. It was efficient or effective for the elect. Okay, that's that's a common expression. Sufficient for the world, efficient for the elect. And so Jesus went to the cross with the primary purpose to save his chosen people, and guess what? He was successful. (laughs) That's exactly what he did. He did not fail. He paid for all of our sins on the cross, including the sin of unbelief that we often struggle with, including the sins of doubt, right? Including all all the sins that you and I committed through COVID, (laughs) Some of you are in midlife. Some of you are even beyond that. I struggled through midlife, I tell you, there were some sins I committed in, during my midlife years that I never knew existed. <laughs> it, was a, it was a unique struggle. Some of you are experiencing that now. Right? Some of you women are older and you've, you hit maybe premenopause or you're kind of in that life stage. There are unique struggles that you will experience during that faith. Guess what? The limited atonement says that Jesus paid for all of your sins, all of your shortcomings, some of you will hit dementia later in life, right? Virtually all of us, you know, unless you, you know, die early for some reason. You know, do you, have you seen people struggling with dementia? They all of a sudden say really strange things, right? Like they don't, they stop sounding like Christians. Like, are, what, what did you just say? Right? Because their, their minds are basically breaking down, right? Jesus, he paid for all of our sins, even the sins we will commit through those later years in life. And so, that's the difference. You know, since everyone limits the atonement in some way, the term limited atonement can be misleading. And so that's why many people, they prefer to use the term definite atonement because Christ's work was definite. It was sure, it was certain. It accomplished what it meant to accomplish I know that this concept is very difficult to grasp. And so let me let me take a, a step back and explain to you what these five points, also known as TULIP, are essentially trying to communicate, okay? Here's a very helpful framework I think that I benefited from immensely. I, I, I trust that it uh, will benefit you as well. If you take the five points, okay, uh, the first point is total depravity or total inability. That's, that's our beginning point. That's our fallen condition. That's basically who we are. We're, we're fallen creatures, right? And then the last point, P, is perseverance of the saints. That's sort of the hope we have uh, that we, you know, God will take us, he, he will allow us to make it to the very end. But in the meantime, so that's the two bookends, okay? In the meantime, how, how is God going to accomplish these things, right, is the middle three points. And so you have unconditional election. And then what, what I want you to notice here is that there's a Trinitarian harmony, okay? So Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are collectively at work. They're not competing against each other, right? There's only one will of God. And they are basically supporting one another in this effort to save a distinct people for themselves. What does the father do? Well, he elects the father. He chooses a people for himself before the foundation of the world was laid. And then what does Jesus do? What does does the son do? It's like a tag team almost, right? Think of a a relay race, uh, if that helps. the, The son, he lays down his life and atones for the sins of his people of Not every single person in the world equally, but the the people whom he was that that he received from his father, right? As as John ten tells us, and what does the Holy Spirit do in response? Uh, Well, the Holy Spirit softens the hardened heart of the sinner, as we saw last week, and applies God's he applies God's saving grace to us, so that we may be counted as righteous and that we may make it to the end. And so you have this harmony, perfect harmony, not not this tension or disconnectedness. Uh, The son doesn't respond to the father saying, well, actually, father, I wanted to save other people, not the people that you've given to me, right? The son didn't have his own own will or a mind. No, the son said, I submit to you the father's will. I will save the people you've given to me. I will go to the cross for them. That's the language of scripture. so let me... Direct you to some uh, specific passages that essentially highlight these principles, starting from the Father's will. Okay, what is the Father's purpose for His people? Ephesians 1, very helpful text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Just, can you let those words sink in? How, how would it be possible for any of us to take the word us and you know, blessed us to mean every single person in the world? You know, if every single person was blessed in this way with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, then why in the world aren't they all saved? This is talking about a distinct group of people, brothers and sisters even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, I listed a couple of questions underneath. Just think about those. Think about those questions. Okay? And so what does, what does the father uh, expect the son to do? as the son is sent into the world. John chapter six, verse 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven, here's Jesus speaking, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, right? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, speaking of the elect, speaking of the sheep but raise it up on the last day, okay? So in other words, he's not competing against his father. John 10, verse 15 and 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, okay? It's a distinct group of people or the sheep. Uh, Where are we here? John 10, 14. Oh, okay. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, right? Good. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So I, I simply ask, can sheep here mean every single person in the world, or... Does it mean God's chosen people, his elect? Right? Uh, let me move on. John 17, 6, same idea. This is meant to reinforce what's being said, okay? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Okay? And then John 17:9. I'm praying for them, (laughs) not not every single person. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, you see, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So, let me go with that later. Are you are you reading this? Are you thinking about this? I mean, you see this. If you can fully accept uh, this this foundational biblical concept that I'm about to unpack for you, I, I think limited atonement won't be as problematic. Okay, and and the basic concept is this: you know, God loves everyone. We can comfortably say I I'm comfortable saying God loves everyone. However, <laughs> however, he as God, he loves his chosen people, his sheep, his bride, with a special kind of love. It's a deeper love. Okay, It's a covenantal love. And, and you should not think that this diminishes God's love or cheapens God's love in any way because it's actually meant to intensify his love. I mean, you think about this. Does my love for Joyce cheapen, become cheapened, or does it intensify if I say, you know what, I love my wife Joyce more than any other woman in the world? Anybody have a problem with that? Do you think anyone would have a problem if you said that about your wife? But what if I said the exact opposite, right, as I looked into her eyes after spending a lovely evening together? You know, yabo. we use yabo actually, okay? I'm not sure if you do, but term of endearment in Korean. yabo. you know, I love you so much, so, so much, but you know what? I love other women exactly the way I love you, you know? What do you think about that? You think that would be, like, really loving of me? My marriage would be in jeopardy, Church. Would it be wrong for me to say that I love my kids more than I love you or your kids? Would any of you, you know, throw a red flag and say, that's a violation. You can't can't think that way, Pastor. But I love my kids with a special kind of love. I would expect you to do the same for your kids. If, I'm sorry, if I saw any, any one of you drowning next to one of my kids, guess who I'm saving first? Right? You got that right. It's not gonna be you. <laughs> and someone may say, well, God's love is supposed to be so much bigger than that. Yes, God's love is bigger than ours. It's more perfect than what I can offer to my wife and my children. But see, the relational paradigm remains the same, right? The idea of family was God's idea. Our earthly marriage is a reflection of the marriage between God and his bride, which is the church. And so that relational paradigm does not break. When when we're loving our bride, when I'm loving my spouse, I'm imaging God's love for his bride, his chosen people. There's nothing wrong with that. If you can grasp that, if you're okay with that, I think limited atonement would not be as problematic in your minds, okay? It's just really, it's based on the idea that God's love for his people is a more radical love, it's a more intense love, it's a covenantal love. Every time I speak at a wedding, I'm speaking about a covenantal love, not a general kind of love. Here's John Piper on limited atonement. It's helpful, okay? We do not deny that all men are the intended beneficiaries of the cross in some sense, okay? In other words, there, there is a kind of a general love that God extends to everyone. First Timothy 4.10 says that the Christ is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. What we deny is that all men are intended as the beneficiaries of the death of Christ in the same way. And so he's making a distinction there, okay? All of God's mercy toward unbelievers and the rising sun to the world, by preaching of the gospel is made possible because of the cross. Every breath that an unbeliever takes is an act of God's mercy withholding judgment. Every time the gospel is preached to unbelievers, it is the mercy of God that gives this opportunity for salvation. But, but, He is especially the savior of those who believe. He did not die for all men in the same sense. The intention of the death of Christ for the children of God was that it purchased far more than the rising sun and the opportunity to be saved. That the Christ actually saves from all evil those for whom Christ died, especially. There's an especially kind of love that God grants to his people only. Some of you guys like to think logically, right? So here's a logic exercise. Here are the only possibilities, right? Uh, first option: that Christ died for all men and all of their sins, every single one. And if that were true, then we'd all have all have to be universalists. Okay, we'd all have to ditch Christianity and say. No matter what your religion, everyone gets saved in the end, okay? Uh, That's one option. I hope none of you embrace that one, okay? Um, All the churches that embrace universalism are slowly dying. Second option, Christ died for all men and some of their sins. Because, like I said earlier, he kind of makes us, allows us to go halfway carries us by his grace halfway, but the rest of the way, it's really up to our, how we exercise our free will, okay? And so this is Arminianism. And there are different variations of this, I get it, okay? but I can't complicate things too much, okay, on a Sunday. Option three is a variation. Christ died for some men and some other sins, right? That's not very common, no one really believes that. Last option, and this is the only other option, this is what we believe, I hope. Christ died for all of the sins of some men, okay, including all of your midlife sins and all of your late life dementia sins and everything in between, right? That is limited atonement, okay, or definite atonement. Right? He truly purchased your redemption. Let's see, some notable quotes. <clears throat> For the Calvinists, that's not a bad word, by the way, okay? Um, sometimes I meet people say, oh, you're, you're one of those Calvinists, aren't you? I say, yeah, I'm Calvinist, that's cool. Okay. No, no problem with that. People try to use that term derogatively. Uh, I want you to be confident in what you believe, brothers and sisters, right? Don't be ashamed of believing in the doctrine of grace. For the Calvinists, the atonement is like a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the stream, okay? For the Arminian, it is like a great wide bridge which goes only halfway across, okay? Question for you, does the Arminian view sound like good news? Does it offer you comfort? Does it, does it give you hope, right, to know that, that you, you could actually, if you have a bad day, Okay, maybe, some, maybe there's this, some chemical imbalance that happens in your life later on, okay? Uh, maybe some, some like, physiological thing going on. Maybe you're like falling into this deep depression. Right? Can you really count on yourself to pull you through to the very end of life? Don't you realize how fragile we are as people? If Christ has died for you, you can never be lost. God will not punish twice for one thing, right? You call that double jeopardy, right? The legal legal expression, double jeopardy. There's no double jeopardy in God's legal system here, okay? If, if Christ bore our punishment, God will not punish us again for the same crime That's what it says. Payment, God's justice, cannot twice demand, first at the bleeding Savior's hand and then again at mine. How can God be just if he punished Christ the substitute and then man himself afterwards? One last quote, and then I'll close with some practical application, okay? This is also very helpful. Michael Horton, when he was a young, I think in his 20s, I don't think it was a teenager, but maybe, you know, actually it was a early 20s. He wrote a book called Putting Amazing Back into Grace. He's a current president. I still I think he's still there uh, of Westminster Seminary in, in Escondido, California. But in that book, he writes: If Christ's death merely made it possible for us to save ourselves by following his example, by making a decision, and by living a holy life, then everybody loses. If at first this doctrine like election and predestination seem too severe, let us remember that an atonement that doesn't atone, a redemption that doesn't redeem, a propitiation that doesn't propitiate, a satisfaction that doesn't satisfy, does not help any, any one of us. The fact that God would choose, redeem, call, and keep a great number known only to him is amazing grace indeed, and of infinitely more comfort than the idea that Christ's death actually secured the salvation of none, really making salvation possible, depending on the ability of those who are dead in trespasses and sins to make the right moves to God. That's another way to put it. Right? I think I'm done with the slides. Some of you may be wondering, uh, I know our sister Davina is wondering this, what difference does this make in real life? Right. <laughs> He always challenges me with that question. What difference does this make practically? And so as we slowly conclude the message, let's consider that question. What difference does this make? What do you think? What difference do you think it'll make in your life, brothers and sisters, if you knew that God chose you as his treasured possession? before he laid down the foundation of the world and before you were even born, what if you really believed in that you knew that as true? And what difference do you think it'll make in your life if you knew that God sent his son into this world in order to fully secure, not, not partially secure, but fully secure your salvation by absorbing the Father's wrath and and paying the penalty of your crime once and for all, no double jeopardy. And what difference do you think it'll make in your life if you knew that, that Jesus did not leave us alone in this life, but in order to ensure that the Father's will would be done, he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us, to make sure that we can make it home safely. What if you knew these things? What difference would it make? You tell me. You know, when I began to connect these dots in my mind, my heart began to really become overwhelmed by the grace of God. God's grace became amazing to me. Uh, see, before I understood these doctrines, <clears throat> I still cried a lot. Actually, you know, I was always known to be a crybaby. Believe it or not, you may look at me and say, "Well, why is such a hard exterior?" I, well, I was. My dad always used to make fun of me. You know, crying again. <laughs> I cried a lot, even as a teenager. I remember crying whenever my life became hard for me though, you know. Oh God, how could you take my father away from me when I'm only in 10th grade? Those kind of tears. Oh God, why would you allow me to suffer in Korea when I could have done so much better in the U.S. if I just stayed here? Why, oh God, why? Those kind of tears. We're all familiar with those tears, right? Anytime hardship comes we complain, <laughs> we'd we cry, <laughs> like, woe is me. I mean, th- Those were the reasons for my tears prior to coming to know these amazing truths about God's grace. I had a pretty high view of me. <laughs> Here's me, and then here was God. God was meant to serve me, like that was up here. And if he didn't serve me, I became like all disgruntled, disappointed, angry. But after I was exposed to the doctrine of grace, I began to grieve, really, for the first time over my own fallen condition. And the nature of my tears changed, right? I shed tears over why, why in the world would God bother with me? Why would he choose me when, I, when I'm so undeserving? So, Brothers, sisters, one one big reason why we're going through this series is because I I believe that truth matters, okay? Truth matters, (laughs) Davina. I I believe your view of God will shape the way you live out your life before God and others. Your, Your worldview will change. The way you view everything in life will gradually change. I'm not saying it happens immediately because we're kind of slow, but eventually you'll connect the dots to become just a a more, a wiser Christian, okay? Let me give you one practical example. Uh, You know, I'm fully convinced that one of the main reasons why so many people in our day are so beholden, are so beholden to the idea of giving more power to the government or to these big corporations, or even to these big mega megachurches. And I hope you know by now that I'm, I'm, I'm really, I tread very carefully. I, I, I do not like big, unaccountable, because the bigger you are, the less accountable you, you are. That's just how, how life is. It makes me very uneasy. Why? Because of these doctrines, because of total depravity, because of my understanding of human nature, you see. But people in our day, especially young people, and I get it, I was once you, like naive. Don't be offended. I was, I was also beholden to these ideas of, of like big government and, you know, big whatever. You know, like flashy things. Uh, if we can just give these... Good people, enough power, maybe a little more power. Okay, they need a little more, a little more power, then they, they can bring about the greatest good in society. It's naive. The, the season of COVID revealed to me what most people really believe, right? I mean, you can kind of tell what people fear the most. God was like somewhere down here. Man, That's somewhere up here. They fear man far much more than they fear God. COVID revealed that more to me. And as as a shepherd of God's church, I want us to kind of reprioritize our thinking. What TULIP essentially does for us is that it gives us an accurate view of our fallen condition, and it, it enlarges our view of God and his grace for us, you see. That's what it does in the end. It doesn't leave you with a small vision of God and his grace. It, it enlarges it for you. And so if you grasp what I'm sharing today, you will have a more humble view of yourselves, and you'll have a more humble view of humanity in general, and you will become more dependent upon God in the end, no doubt. Also think about this. If your view of God and his grace in your life is much bigger than it was before, do you think that you will be someone who is more easily shaken by the trials of this world and fearful of what man can do to you, or do you think that you will be able to live more like Daniel in Babylon and Esther in Persia and the Apostle Paul in Rome. What do you think will happen if you had a greater view of God and his grace? It'll be the latter, brothers and sisters. You'll be able to live more courageously and you'll be able to place your trust and hope in God in the face of adversity more and more. So these doctrines are meant to shape your hearts and minds And I tell you, it'll make you more attractive. It'll make you a more attractive person and a more God-honoring person in the end. Having a bigger view of God's grace will also help you to become more gracious in all of your relationships. It'll make you a more patient and grace-filled spouse, parent, and friend. Because how can you treat others poorly without grace when you know that apart from God's grace, you yourself... You're nothing, you're absolutely nothing apart from God's grace. If that's your reality and your belief, how, how, how can you turn to others and treat them poorly without any grace? How can you be so judgmental when you yourself, you know, you're a product of God's grace from beginning to end? So these doctrines will affect everything in your life. I myself would not be able to preach or share the gospel with The conviction I do if I believe that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was merely meant to give us a chance to be saved, how can I be a preacher with that kind of belief? In my 20s, maybe I could have spoken with some conviction when I had a more optimistic view of humanity, but not now. Not now, after struggling through my own midlife woes, after seeing so much brokenness in people throughout my 30s and 40s. People are so fragile and weak. And if you don't believe that yet, I hope you come to that realization soon because unless you do, you will not be able to experience the depth of God's grace for you in this life. We are nothing apart from the grace of God. And so as we embrace these realities, may God be glorified and honored. And as we rest upon his power and strength, may we, may our hearts find great comfort and peace. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your one and only son to suffer and die a criminal's death on our behalf Surely your love is extended to all people, for you bear patiently with all of humanity and show kindness to all, regardless of who they may be. But there is no doubt that you extend your special covenant love to the people you have specifically chosen, before any of them were even born, to show us that your act of choosing was not based on human effort or human will, but solely based on your sovereign pleasure and divine will. So as we think of these things, may we be humbled. As parents love and treasure their children, as a husband loves and adorns her bride, so you love and freely lavish your grace upon your people. Therefore, we are truly blessed. We thank you for such amazing grace. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.